Our scripture reading this morning will come from 1 Peter, chapter, uh, chapter 1 of 1 Peter. We'll read verses 3 to 9. And if you're using your pew Bible, you'll find that there on page uh, 1014. First Peter chapter 1. Hear now the word of our Lord as it is read for you in this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So far the reading of of the word of our Lord. I draw your attention in particular to verse 6 and verse 7, which will be our sermon text for this morning, that in this you rejoice, that now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials and may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's ask for our Heavenly Father's blessing upon our time in His Word together. Uh, Our Father in Heaven, uh, Lord, You caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for, for our learning. So we ask in this morning, in our time together, that You would uh, grant us that we would hear them, and not that by our, our natural ears or by our uh, natural understanding, but by our hearing uh, in the Holy Spirit who indwells our hearts, uh, Lord, that we would embrace and uh, ever hold fast to the blessed hope of uh, everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Hear us, we ask then, we pray for his sake, amen. Now, uh, as, a, as a good seminarian, or former seminarian, I should say, uh, I, of course, enjoy books quite a lot, and one of my favorite hobbies is scrolling through Amazon for hours on end, looking at uh, what sort of books are, are in the top uh, sales spots. And uh, just this morning, I was searching through Amazon's top Christian books, and I, I of course, wasn't surprised to find uh, the latest Joel Osteen publication in the top five, uh, the top five Christian books. Uh, this, this title is uh, Rule, Your Li- uh, Rule Your Day. And this is the description from the back of the book. You would like to savor each moment, grow into your best life, engage in productive relationships, see your dreams come to pass, But distractions, delays, disappointments relentlessly hijack your plans and undermine your good intentions. With this trademark wisdom and unwavering positivity, Joel Osteen reveals six keys 
for claiming control over each new day. He teaches you how to identify faulty thinking, recast your vision for the future, rise above your circumstances to guard your heart and mind against negativity, and transcend distractions to focus on what matters most. When you work with the tools God has given you and take control of your time, you can bounce back from disappointments. You can prevent poisonous thoughts from entering your atmosphere and fully enjoy the bright future that's ahead of you. Don't settle for surviving when you could be thriving. Rule your day. Now, of course, it's easy to, uh, to use Joel Osteen or uh, other so-called prosperity pastors as the hallmarks of unbiblical pop Christianity that's just abundant in our day. Uh, we're bringing this up not to necessarily present Joel Osteen as a punching bag, a, a straw man. See, there, there, there's a reason that uh, these, these health and wealth teachings, as we call them, are just so alluring to so many people. It's reflective of the, the American dream, the Western modern pursuit of success, of comfort, of freedom. You know, who, who doesn't want those things in this life? Who doesn't want to see your, your bank account full to, to feel healthy and strong, relaxed, who doesn't want to be tied down or restrained or told what to do? That's, that's in all of us, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. The problem is that, of course, this doesn't reflect the realities of the Christian life. I, I do believe that many of us, even in confessionally reformed churches, have a tendency to think and act in this same way, this desire for our health and wealth prosperity gospel. Now, Scripture is full of promises and benefits for believers, good things. There's eternal life, there's community and fellowship of the saints and the benefits of the church, the oversight of the elders and deacons, the ministry of the word. And along with that, there's also joy and peace in the Christian life. But we're also promised suffering and sorrow. We're even promised hostility from the world, which you see so much in, on the news today or on social media. And so despite what the latest book of the, the, the Joel Osteens of the world might say, the Christian is no stranger to trials and hardships. Everyone here has and, and will face some kind of hardship in this life. But the question that we want to ask this morning is, would your current worldview endure in those times? Can your faith survive sudden deaths? Uh, can your faith survive a diagnosis of, of, of disease, of burnout, mental breakdowns? Would you persevere under ridicule from the society and the world, from, from, from harassment or violence? If the Lord so wills it, if it does come to, to pass in, in, in our neighborhoods, can you endure in a world of suffering and hostility? And we may wish that serious hardships will never come, you know, or maybe in the least, we, we hope that the trials that do come to us won't be as bad as they might be. But we do need to be prepared for them. We need a worldview that doesn't pass away under fire, under trial. We need a worldview that is strengthened even when it is thrust into fire. A worldview that is tempered. 
And the letter of 1 Peter is given to us to forge such a worldview. That worldview is a reinforced faith in, in the God of our salvation and His perfect will for our lives in Christ. And our scripture text this morning shows that this divine will in Christ even includes suffering. And since suffering is soundly ordered in, in God's wisdom, suffering is not meaningless. We're going to consider this in our morning with our theme. God sends us trials to refine our faith so that we would rejoice in Christ, both now and forever. Again, God sends us trials to refine our faith so that we would rejoice in Christ now and forever. We're going to consider this with two points this morning. That trials will purify your faith. And second, trials prove your faith. We'll see what we mean by that as we go along, uh, which you, again, can see those uh, points in your bulletin handout for your reference. So now we have here this thought that trials purify your faith. When, when reading Scripture, we first never want to forget that uh, the books in Scripture were written by real people. Uh, these people lived in specific times. They had their own cultures and their own circumstances. Okay, there was a reason that Peter penned this letter. Now, there, there's a group of Christians in the area of Asia Minor, as you would see in verses 1. Uh, the, these Christians in that region are, are suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we're not given a, a lot of detail about exactly what's happening But from some of the things that Peter would say later in chapters 2 and 3 and chapter 4, we can get something of a general picture here. Now, the citizens of the cities that they lived in were persecuting them for following the crucified criminal, Jesus Christ, and for not participating in the pagan practices like everyone else. In fact, the the, the Christians... uh, posed a pretty hard uh, day-to-day life for the unbelievers in their cities. You see, when a Christian's going around telling people not to trust in idols, uh, not to bow down to false images and whatnot, uh, that can be pretty hard hard on the salary of, uh, you know, Joe the bronze idol craftsman, right? Or or those who are making idols out of wood and ivory. It's not good for business. They're telling people not to buy up the food to to sacrifice to idols and whatnot. Now, at this point in time, what's interesting with this is that the Roman government isn't the one who's instigating the persecution of the Christians. Okay, the Roman government aren't telling everyone, hey, go and beat those guys up. Stop giving them jobs. Give them a hard time. No, the the citizens are the ones who are harassing the believers all on their own. They don't need the government to tell them how to do that. Now, being shunned and ridiculed in your own country due to your beliefs would surely make you feel discouraged and perhaps even doubt what it is that you believe. You know, am I I on the wrong side of this? Uh, Do I just believe something, a silly little superstition? Everyone else seems to have a better worldview than me. Oh, they're, they're having a hard time in really trusting in their faith in the midst of suffering and persecution. And so the Apostle Peter needs to encourage them to stand fast 
in the true grace of God, as we're told in chapter 5, verse 12. And Peter does this by pointing to God and his work of salvation in Christ. He reminds them, as you see there in verse 2, you are of the elect. You're the covenant people of God. You've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus for your justification. And you're being sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to him. God's not sitting idly by. His promises weren't lies. He is with you, even in suffering. Well, then in verses 3 to 5, Peter gives the believers uh, three reasons to now praise God for this work he's doing here. Three reasons to praise God. First, he says that he has caused them to be born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The second reason, he is keeping an inheritance for them in heaven. And he is keeping it perfect. And third, he is keeping them in faith for that inheritance of salvation and glory, which will be revealed in the last time. So those three reasons to praise God. He's caused them to be born again. He's keeping an inheritance for them, and he's keeping them in faith. It's it's these three things that Peter's talking about when he says in verse 6, in this you rejoice. Right? In being born again, in your inheritance, and in faith. God is keeping all this for you. You see, God, God promised that Christ has secured salvation in such a sure way that not only is its fullness being safeguarded for us in heaven, but he's making certain, he's making sure that we will get to the end to fully receive our inheritance. Christians hope for the glory to come. And that hope is so certain that it's not just a future expectancy, something way out there that we're waiting and longing for. No, it's so tangible, it's so real of a hope that it's a living hope. It's a present joy for this life, no matter what. Now, with with such divine security, no hardship in this life can corrode this inheritance. And in fact, hardships even have a role in strengthening Christian confidence. Hey, God, has, God has ordained trials and suffering for the Christian's good. That can be very hard to see, of course, in, in the middle of, of those trials. And we'll, we'll speak about that a little bit later. But as it is right now, you'll, you'll see in verse 6, that Peter tells them that in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That phrase, if necessary, uh, isn't saying uh, now if it's the possibility that you will suffer. You know, if you happen to suffer, it's more like he's saying that you will suffer. It's a rhetorical statement there, if you will. Now, in some pietistic churches, the idea of suffering is a divine retribution because you did something bad. But that's not what Scripture is teaching here. Rather, every time that Peter brings up the Christian's suffering in his letter, he relates it to Christ's own sufferings. That, that same phrase there, it is necessary, uh, in Greek, is found in Matthew chapter 16. 
After Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, we're told that our Lord began to tell his disciples, it is necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. It is necessary for him to be killed. It is necessary for him to be raised on the third day. Another way to say this is that it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. So Christ went to the cross unjustly to pay the penalty for our own sins. And those called in Christ, those united to Christ, are then likewise called to suffer, even if it should be suffering unjustly. That is the if that Peter is speaking of here. If it so be the Lord's will that you suffer unjustly. And this is, this is precisely the, the thing that Peter uh, would also say later in chapter 2. There he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And again he says in chapter 4, Rejoice, dear Christian, insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That last one sounds a lot like our scripture text, doesn't it? Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When we receive this inheritance that we hope and long for and expect in holy anticipation. But now this is the nature of suffering. Yeah, this, this is what suffering is. It's, it's, suffering is not something that's according to the will of humans. It's not something that's according to the will of the devil that we are reviled, that we are despised, persecuted, or even put to death. Now, the wicked are certainly responsible in their sins against us. And the Lord will call them to account for that because you are his. But ultimately, it is God's design to use their evil deeds for his good, for his eternal purposes. It is not according to the will of humans or Satan that you are deviled or that you are reviled, despised, and persecuted. So what's the purpose of that, of suffering? Why would God have us, uh, why would he allow us to undergo suffering? Well, we get a little bit of an insight here in verse 7. It's so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, gold is the most valuable and lasting element in this world. But to, to get it to its greatest value, it has to be melted down. It, it has to be burnt up and, and liquefied to separate the impurities under extreme heat. Yet, as precious as gold is, gold itself will, will be broken down and pass away at the end of time. But what doesn't pass away, what doesn't pass away is what you have in Jesus Christ. In the eyes of God, a purified and proven faith under fire is far more valuable than gold. And it will live on uh, in the age to come. Uh, I was just speaking with a, a friend last night. Um, she, was, she was using a, she was talking about how she feels very 
uh, shattered and broken. There, there's uh, an ancient practice she was, we were talking about, um, uh, a Japanese cultural practice where, uh, you'll forgive me, I forget the Japanese name for it, but when you have something like, say, a teapot, that teapot cracks or shatters, rather than throw it all away or merely just, say, glue it back together, the Japanese will take uh, gold and use that gold in a manner in which it, it, it is, uh, acts as an adhesive. They'll pour it between the cracks. They'll fill in the cracks of this broken pot. And it, it turns into then a work of art, that you have this, what should be a, the, these cracks and veins in this pot, now lined all over with gold. Well, what the Lord does, though, in his broken, his suffering, afflicted people, he's not just filling in the cracks with gold. The whole thing's being turned into gold. The whole thing is being transformed into something greater and more beautiful. But first comes the cracks. First comes the shattering, the brokenness. Well, you know, what's, what's, more, what's more adhesive in a greater bond than gold, though, is the blood of Christ. You are entirely covered in it. Gold will pass away but faith will live on in the age to come. You see, in, in this life, in this age, my faith has impurities. It has those cracks. It has fears. It has doubts. I have temptations. I sin. My faith is not yet in its perfection. But God in his mercy didn't leave it as impure as it was when I was first born again. You have that, that hymn writer, uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, One of my favorite quotes, he says, uh, put briefly, I am not as I ought to be, but thank God I am not as I was. My faith is not yet in its perfection, dear brothers and sisters, but God hasn't left it as it were. As it's written in Proverbs 17, verse 3, the crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. See, I'm being tested. I'm being melted down. I'm being tempted and crafted into the image of Christ. And there's cracks in warping at times that does take place. Of course, talking about God uh, sending us trials and suffering can sound a bit uh, uncomfortable. It, It can sometimes sound like it's as if he's responsible for the bad things in our lives. Don't you think? We can think that way often. We might even get mad at God for our circumstances. Well, as as we said in our introduction, here's where I think it's a lot easier for us to identify with the prosperity gospel than we might admit. You know, we do want things to be comfortable. We do want to be happy. We don't want to be afflicted. We want a health and wealth gospel. But now, perhaps what makes it feel this way, why we long for those kind of things, why we're so prone to this American dream version of Christianity, perhaps what makes us feel this way is because we aren't ready to be separated from our impurities. Maybe in some ways we don't want to give them up. Or maybe we're afraid of what might come out. But dear friends, isn't that precisely why we need trials, and why we need God to do it for us. I'm not willing to put myself under fire to have my faith purified. I I won't do that to myself. 
It's painful. It's uncomfortable. It's a, it can be too disconcerting. We need God to do it for us and to trust in what He's doing. And what is it that He's doing? Well, this is where we have to remember what Peter referred to when he said, In this you rejoice. He's keeping us in faith, He's keeping our inheritance. And he is keeping us till the end. So even when we're cast in the fiery furnace, dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, even when thrust into that fiery furnace, we have living hope as those born again in Christ. And the flames will not cause our inheritance in heaven to be singed or to be harmed. And like with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, the angel of the Lord keeps us secure for our eternal reward. The flames shall not touch you. No matter how you're broken down. No matter how hot it seems to be. So beloved in Christ, it's an honor to be tried and tested by the Lord. And this isn't to undermine pain and sorrow. Not in the slightest. This isn't to undermine the bitterness of suffering. We do hurt. We are real people. Just as the real people that Peter was addressing here in this letter. Trials are for proving the genuineness of our faith. But it's also a lifelong process. And here we're going to speak of how trials prove our faith in this second point. Sometimes we respond to trials in less than commendable ways. You know, while we're in the heat of the moment. While we're actually under fire of those trials. It may not be until further down the line, maybe a month, two years, five years, ten years. It may not be until later that we see how much our faith has grown and has been strengthened by those things. What we have to remember is that ultimately it is God who will appraise our faith and not us. The sufferings that we endure now are, as Peter said a little bit earlier, the The sufferings we endure now are for a little while. Okay, they're temporary. As Paul says, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Elsewhere, Romans 8, 18, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings, your your afflictions, your trials, whatever it is, however much it seems the world is beating you down, it doesn't weigh in comparison to Christ. It's so light and so momentary that it's nothing. It's in in the long run. It pales in comparison to the glory of Christ. The children of God, the heirs of the glorious inheritance, triumph. But provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, in in the present circumstances of those whom uh, Peter's writing to, in their present circumstances, the world was giving them insults. The world was shaming them and dishonoring them for their faith. They might have felt pretty beat up as well. But at the revelation of Jesus Christ, 
these present sufferings will result in praise and glory and honor. And moreover, through those things, they'll come into the purpose of their faith, salvation. So Peter then gives us the main reason that the Christians can have hope and joy in the midst of, these, of their trials. If you look at verse 8, here's the main reason you can have hope and joy. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Hey, it's faith. It is faith. Not because they're glad or enthusiastic for Christ. It's not an emotional thing. It's not just a head knowledge thing. But it's because they love him. It is faith as wholehearted trust, mind, heart, every bit of them. A wholehearted trust in Christ that has its roots so deeply planted in the soil of the heart of the person that they cannot be uprooted in their faith, no matter what comes their way. As he says in verse 5, Peter, by God's power they are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He guards that seed of the gospel that is planted in your heart. He grows it, he waters it, he nourishes it, and he will bring it to its fullest fruition. Now Peter, if you recall, he's, he's writing to a group of Christians that very many of them most likely did not see Christ with their own eyes. Okay? Peter did, but most of these believers, like us, did not. However, the Spirit of Christ is at work in those believers, and he's strengthening their resolve to lead them through their trials. After Christ arose from the dead, uh, he had appeared to the disciples, like, uh, but uh, of all the disciples, Thomas hadn't seen him. And when when the others uh, told Thomas what it is that they saw, the resurrected Jesus Christ, Thomas had said, I would never believe unless... I place my fingers in Christ's wounds. You may remember that account in the Gospel of John. Well, Jesus did eventually appear to Thomas amongst the others. And as we're told in John 20, he says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand on my side. Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered in belief, My Lord and my God. And how did Jesus respond? Well, he said, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Okay? These Christians that Peter was writing to, in a manner of speaking, were more blessed than Thomas to have believed with the eyes of faith in love. Not with the eyes of their sight, not with the, uh, the tactile uh, not with the textile feeling of their hands, of his hands, with the eyes of faith in love, wholehearted trust in Jesus Christ. They were more blessed. And so are we who also look to the Lord in faith, not by sight. With those believers that Peter's writing to, those trials that they endured served to purify that faith, that wholehearted trust in Christ. 
Yeah. It served to refine them with a joy indescribable. Well, let's go back here to this, this end of verse 7. Okay. Peter gives here a reason why all this suffering happens. So that the genuineness of our faith will result in praise, honor, and glory at the appearing of Christ in the age to come. The age to come. All the good stuff comes in the end, sounds like. Okay, but, but how, the age to come, we talk about it, it sounds so far off, doesn't it? And well, let's be honest, uh, the glory of God can seem awfully uh, abstract and vague to us in our daily lives. It can seem just so far away and not all that relevant in the moment. Again, all the good is yet to come. Well, what about here and now? What about at this moment in my life? You know, I'm just trying to, trying to pay the rent and to keep food on the table. I'm just, I'm just trying to keep getting out of bed and making it to work through my illness. I'm just trying to hold my family together and avoid a divorce. I'm just trying to figure out what life should be like now that my, my spouse has died. What now? Where's the good stuff, Lord? I only see suffering. I only see sorrow and affliction in this world. You know, we, we could write up list after list of all the things that each of us are going through or all the things that we see on the news and media or in our own neighborhoods, our own streets, in our own homes. But the answer to each is the same. Dear beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, when the journey becomes very difficult, we get focused on what's right in front of us and the most pressing problems, the things that we see with our eyes. But that's why this passage is here. It's to call our eyes of faith and to call our heart and soul to the greater reality. The real things that are occurring, too heavenly, too wonderful to describe with our mouths and our tongues. Too glorious for our ears to really to hear and get a sense of now. But we can grasp them with our hearts because of Jesus Christ. I'm speaking of the gospel. The gospel of salvation. Jesus Christ came to put an end to sin. And even on the last day, to cast away death. To have it put away forever. To have death be put to death. And all Satan, all enemies of the Lord put under his feet. And also for the renewal of all things. So we're, we're encouraged to press forward with this life. Not through gritted teeth. Not just trying to grit and bear it. But... To do so joyfully, knowing that everything we go through in our lives, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, amplifies the glory of God. Okay, our, our joy is not in our circumstances, in how happy I am, how comfortable I am. Our joy isn't in our circumstances, it's in God. It's a wonderful and mysterious thing that the more we look to Him, even in affliction, our joy deepens. There is no end to that. We cannot reach the bottom of that well, of that fountain, Jesus Christ. 
It's because of him and looking to him in this hope, joy, faith, and love that we are able to face our challenges, all things, day in and day out. It's because we focus on God's promise to save us. We focus on who God is and the work that he does, that he has done, that he continues to do and will bring to its completion. Dear Christian, we believe that our God always keeps his promises, do we not? So count it all joy then, beloved, as you encounter trials in this life. Not because they're enjoyable to go through, but because Jesus Christ is God. He is Savior. Count it all joy then, beloved, as you encounter trials in this life. And do not be surprised as though something strange were happening to you, as if God has failed to guard you, as if God has failed to keep you, as if God has forgotten you or doesn't care about you. Perish that thought. Instead, let confident faith in Christ and love for Him be your sight. It's looking to Christ that you will find hope and joy in all occasions. And God will change you through those trials and make you more and more like Christ, our suffering Savior. So whatever suffering you've undergone, whatever suffering you're currently going through, whatever suffering that you will enter into, know the source of your strength is in the one who himself learned obedience in his humiliated state. Who obeyed the Father even to the point of suffering and dying on a cross. This is the worldview that endures. This is the worldview that when we ask all the questions, what do I do in this society? How do I raise my kids in this life? How do I make it to the next day? Remember that this present evil age is passing away. We have one foot in that original creation that one foot that is suffering the effects and curses of the fall, and the other foot in the kingdom of glory, where things are being renewed. Hebrews 12 tells us that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now the suffering on the cross, the suffering on the cross may not have been something at the moment if you were to be there observing it, it, wasn't, it wouldn't have seemed something to rejoice about. It would have seemed like the, the enemy won, the Pharisees won, Satan won, sin won, death won. It's nothing to rejoice about. But our Lord considered the joy set before him. And he willingly went through it, knowing what was in store, what was to come, the perfect plan of the Father. He considered the joy his people. He considered the joy of his work, the fruit of his labor. You, me. He knew what was on store on the other side. And the same promises for us as well. All of us who endure to the end and who, who endure the suffering, who persevere through the trials of life. For, us who, for you who are not ashamed of him, but willing to forsake all to be with him. You know what is on the other side, beloved. What you anticipate even now 
and live for. And there is, a, there is laid up for us a crown of righteousness, which is the Lord. And the righteous judge will award us on that day. So there sits your inheritance, which you already possess. There sits your object of faith that's more precious than gold, who you are united to, your own token of flesh in heaven, your guarantee. You will make it. You will be with him, no matter what is thrown your way in this life. We have a living hope because he lives. And that's a joy that fills the heavens and the earth, isn't it? Praise God for that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. We thank you, merciful God and, and Father. Lord, we thank you that you have brought us to know you and your Son by your, your Spirit and, and in your Word. So Lord, keep us, we ask, from all hypocrisy and from, from unrighteousness, uh, from unfaithfulness, from doubts and weakness, Lord as if we could be swayed. Lord, frustrate all evil and subtle design against your word and your church. Let us have that full assurance and knowledge that we are secured in Christ eternally because of Jesus Christ. Because of what he has done. So grant us a strong faith. Grant us patience in enduring these trials. Grant us steadfastness in all suffering and in adversity. Sustain, Lord, and deliver your people from oppression and ridicule and tyranny, Lord, to this new heavens and new earth. Hear us, we ask, Lord, to the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.